Amen. Indeed, it is so encouraging to have our hearts directed by singing truth and then being able to turn to the scriptures and see the riches of God's word. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 and we pick up on this marvelous study in God's word. We're in a tremendously rich section of scripture No doubt, working our way through this chapter, you will agree with me that this is some of the richest sections and themes in all of the Bible. I was just this week covering, reading through the chapter and writing down various doctrines that are covered in this chapter. In this chapter, we learn about the incarnation, how God became man, Jesus taking on human flesh. We learn about the eternal sonship of Christ. God sent his own son. We learn about union with Christ. We are in Christ and it is through Christ. We learn about penal substitution. Christ takes upon himself our transgressions and our penalty. We learn about the doctrine of election, the doctrine of justification, that God puts his righteousness upon us and declares us righteous because we are credited with the righteousness of Christ. We learn about redemption. We learn about adoption, regeneration, and sanctification. We learn about the perseverance of the saints, glorification, and eternal life. And we're not even done yet. Then there is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and pneumatology. The doctrine of God's Spirit who is interceding on our behalf before God when we are too weak in our prayers. God the Spirit is interceding for us. Then we we learn about the sanctifying role of the Spirit within us. God's sovereignty, predestination, and the overflowing, abounding love of God. That is from verse 1 through verse 39. So rich. So if it takes us a few weeks to get through this, I think you'll understand. It's going to take us some time to cover the riches that God has for us in this marvelous chapter. It's no wonder that this is one of those chapters that pastors go to and draw out because the themes are so rich for us. Now, I was thinking through the Bible just generally as a whole. Maybe you have observed this, but it just struck me this week. At the opening of the Bible, the first two chapters of the Word of God is a description of perfection. Perfect earth. God created the heavens and the earth, and he created man, and everything that he's created was good without fault. It wasn't completed in perfection, but it certainly existed in perfection because God had created everything and even declared it. It was good. It was without fault. There was no blemish whatsoever. Then from chapter 3 all the way up until the last two chapters of the Bible, there is the fall. Until the last two chapters, you have perfection restored. You have the opening two chapters, and the last two chapters is uh, perfection, God's creation. Everything is in order, but everything in between is From chapter 3 of Genesis through chapter 20 of Revelation is God's exposing sin, revealing judgment, revealing his character. It is the dealing with the transgression. The Bible is filled with warnings, filled with with description of rebellion, filled with description about the greatness of God. As you read through the Bible, and you can't even get out of the book of Genesis before you've come across themes like death, murder, incest, rape, drunkenness, idolatry, homosexuality, revenge, hatred, and on and on the list of sins go. Continue through the rest of the Pentateuch and through the Old Testament, and you just see the unfolding of the corruption of man's condition and rebellion. So all along the way, God is exposing sin in the human condition. He is exposing man's fault. He's revealing to man that he has fallen short and he comes under judgment. But at the same time, 
God is, throughout his word, revealing the greatness of his character. What we learn from the Bible is that God is an all-knowing God who is all-powerful, omnipresent, and eternal, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, who has no equal, no rival, no superior. He has no match in all of the heavens. He's loving and just, he's good and he's merciful and he's holy in all of his attributes. He has no flaws. He is perfect. He himself cannot look upon evil. He himself is not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. And this God is eternal God, having no beginning and no end. He is the creator of all things. Everything that has come into existence, whether in the heavens or on earth or in this galaxy or world around us, is all created by this God. God who exists in unmatched power and unmatched understanding, who dwells in unapproachable light, is also described in the scriptures as actively and powerfully opposed to anything that is contrary to his perfections. Or to say it differently, he is opposed to anything against his holiness. In heaven, Isaiah tells us, when, he gives, when Isaiah gives us a glimpse into the glorious throne room of God, Isaiah 6 tells us that in heaven, angels are crying out to one another, saying to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. These are the words of heaven. These are the, this is the message that is proclaimed around heaven. And that theme is picked up again in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8 describes these living creatures there, four living creatures surrounding God, and they are crying out and do not cease to say day and night, they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. God is holy, righteous, and good. And man is revealed as being fallen, corrupt, and under divine judgment. And you read through the scriptures and you see the themes that come out in the scriptures. You see the themes of God's judgment for wickedness because God hates wickedness and he is opposed to the proud and he is angry with the wicked and he punishes and will punish all iniquity for there won't be a careless word or a careless deed that is not given an account for. And God will not be mocked, Paul said to the Galatians, when a man sows that he is going to reap and God will bring judgment. But the grand theme in the midst of all of that, when that comes out, and then certainly if we just stopped right there, all of those things would be true. It's true that God is holy. It's true that he is perfect. It's true that he cannot look upon evil. It's true that this is a fallen world with people who have rebelled against God. But the grand theme is this. God is working to show man, you can't fix this. Only I can Only God can fix this problem. And God has spent all of this history demonstrating this very truth. We are inept. We're all in it together. We are completely inept. We can't conquer sin. We can't do it. As much as we try, as clear as God's instruction is, as precise and as accurate as his word is, as clear as his standard is, we keep falling short of that. We keep in our minds drifting, in our hearts drifting, in our wills drifting. We keep falling short. And while we long to draw near to this holy God and we long to be with him, we long to be like him, we also keep seeing this continual failure day in and day out. So much so that we could read through and describe as reading through the scriptures, we are a miserable lot, desiring to have freedom only to experience uh, a slavery to sin, or desiring to overcome only to find within us temptations which lead us astray. 
And what is demonstrated throughout the scriptures over and over again is this great truth. God and God alone saves. God and God alone delivers. God and God alone will be able to protect his holiness and lead to righteousness and bring out a restoration so that while there is corruption now, that corruption is going to cease. There is going to be a time in which there will be an end, an end to the rebellion, an end to the unrighteousness, an end to the corruption. And what we are all learning through the process is how weak we are in helping God get to this end within ourselves. But also what we're learning in the process is that what God is able to accomplish in us and through us. So that while the Bible is clear that man is rebellious and man is sinful, man is under judgment, the natural man is in rebellion, the Bible is also clear God is powerful, God is victorious, and God will accomplish what no one can accomplish, only he can accomplish, he will bring victory. True, total victory. Victory of entire Condemnation of sin, victory of complete and total deliverance, victory uh, that he will conquer sin and remove its judgment. He is going to, in every way, bring about restoration so that there is total holiness again. We're not there yet. In actuality, chronologically, in space and time, but to some degree, we're already there in Christ Jesus positionally, because of what Christ has come and done. And that's what Paul begins to unfold for us here in Romans chapter 8. What Paul demonstrates here in Romans chapter 8 is that God is victorious. There is victory in Christ. There is victory in God. There is victory in the Spirit. There is victory in God the Father God will overcome and has overcome. And that only God can accomplish this great work, this work of bringing redemption. Only God can conquer sin. Only God can accomplish this purpose. And he has been telling his people that he's going to do it. Let me show you real quick. Turn over to Daniel chapter 9 to set this up. Daniel, the prophet, receives these words. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel was anticipating by this point that it's getting close to the fulfillment of the prophecy of Jeremiah, the prophet. And so Daniel is calculating in his mind the prophet Jeremiah had declared that after 70 years, there was going to be deliverance for the people. And Daniel's kind of counting the toes and fingers, recognizing, all right, we're getting close to that time. It should be here soon. And so he is praying and he's anticipating. And finally, the angel Gabriel comes and gives Daniel a message. And in verse 24 is that message that the angel Gabriel gives. He says this, Seventy weeks have been declared for your people and your holy city. For what? To finish the transgression. Notice, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring up everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now these are some grand objectives. What God says, here are my objectives that I am going to accomplish in all of history. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to end the transgression. That is, I'm going to end Israel's rebellion. Two, I am going to make an end of sin. All evil, all sin is going to be done away with. I am going to make atonement for that sin. That sin is going to be covered. On top of that, there's going to be everlasting righteousness. And then the end of vision and prophecy, no more. You're going to be living, waiting for something else to come because we're going to fulfill all these things. And then lastly, anoint anoint the most holy place. There's so much riches there. Come to Sunday night and we'll tell you all the riches. 
But the point is this, and it's what I wanted to put on your mind. This is written back in the 500s B.C. or 2,500 years ago. This is written out that God has said, here's what I am going to accomplish. 2,500 years of human history have continued to move on, and the themes are still being accomplished There is a coming time where God says, my purpose is to bring an end to sin, to bring victory, to accomplish my good purposes. Often I've thought to myself, in the midst of this, Lord, how long and why have you waited so long? Certainly in one sense, waiting was for him to carry out his redemptive work to save many from many generations over many nations and cultures. Certainly there is that. But there is also this theme that is at work that over all of this time of God waiting and giving the law and revealing his perfect standard, God is demonstrating to man how completely powerless he is. We can't conquer sin. We keep within ourselves and our own natural abilities, we fall short so that our natural response then is this, call out to God. God and God alone is victorious. God and God alone can deliver, and he says he will. He will deliver. That comes out in this chapter, particularly here, back to Romans chapter 8. comes out in Romans 8, verse 3 and 4. The marvelous victory that we have in Jesus Christ. God accomplishes what we couldn't accomplish In the sending of his son, God accomplished what we couldn't accomplish, and that's what Paul draws out here. Now, just to remind you that there are a series of graces that Paul reminds us of that we are to think upon in our Christian lives. Because at times you might think at this moment, if I am to be victorious, I don't feel very victorious. And I would say the focus isn't on us, the focus is on God in these verses. The focus is on what God is accomplishing, what God is giving, what God is doing. Now for us, it's a matter of our yielding to him. And the more that we are yielding to him, the more we're going to see and experience the riches of these graces in our life. But just to remind you of the graces, the first one we saw was in verse 1, that we are freed from the wrath of God. We saw that there is no, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been freed from condemnation. No penalty for sin for us to bear. There's no sense that God has started the punishment on Christ and is going to complete it in us. There's no sense that he needs us suffering and misery so that we could complete the fulfillment of God's wrath. It has been entirely satisfied in Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, if we suffer, it is under discipline. Now, if we suffer, it is because God is directing us as a father, teaching us and growing us. But there's no sense in which we are under divine wrath because God has not fully satisfied in Christ because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Which means then, in our difficulties, we're not looking to God as some, uh, someone who is cruel, heartless, who doesn't care for us, and therefore we're ter- terrified to enter into his presence. No, this is a God who has fully satisfied his wrath in Christ. We are able to freely enter before him as we enter before our Father who loves us and cares for us. second truth that we noticed last week was this that we live by a new law. We saw that in verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. We don't have to obey sin any longer. We don't have to give in to death. We don't have to give in to sin's rebellion. We are free to live in newness of life, free to live by the spirit. We are not under the rule of sin where previously, whenever sin beckoned, we gave in too freely to sin's beckoning. Now we live under a new principle altogether, the life-giving principle of the Spirit of God. 
Now, again, I'm not saying all of us are perfect in that yet in Christ. And I'm not saying every day we yield all the way we should, but this is what we are in Jesus Christ now. We are freed from the rule of sin, and we are freed to live by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. We are free to live in newness of life. We, the bondages have been broken. The chains have been taken off. We are free to live in this new life. That leads us to now the third expression. is where we pick up in our series. The third expression of God's marvelous grace is this. That God has overcome and been victorious by fulfilling the law of Christ, or fulfilling the law in us through Christ. Say it simply, we fulfill the law in Christ. Notice verse 3 and 4. These are so profoundly rich. It says this, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now this is a profoundly rich section But what it gets at is the grand victory of God, what God has accomplished that the law could not accomplish, what the weakness of the flesh meant that the law couldn't do, God himself did. And that's what will unfold here. It's rather an interesting way that Paul starts this. In fact, if you read through different versions, you will have different word ordering in regards to how they Uh, introduce verse 3 for what the law could not do weak as it was through the flesh I would translate it like this for the ability of the law had been weakened through the flesh as the literal translation word for word in its order how how it unfolds here uh, in this text For whatever the law was able to do it was weakened by the flesh or through the flesh And now that raises all kinds of questions. What is it that the law would be expected to do? Paul's going to answer it in the next verse, but just thinking about if you were a Jew under the law, what would you expect the law to accomplish? What is it that you would expect that the law would deliver? And we could say it like this. We would expect that the law would point to the path of holiness by which we walk on that path and would receive the blessing of God. That was his purpose. If I gave into the law and I followed the law, I would walk in holiness and righteousness and as a result, receive the fullness of God's blessing and grace. Let me show you this. Turn over to the book of Deuteronomy. Moses writes on this. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy 28, starting in verse 9. Moses gives some instruction here. And he's encouraging the people to respond and walk in the commandments of God. And he says this, starting, notice... uh, Starting in verse 9, it says, The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, as he swore to you. Notice, if you will keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. So here's the deal. He says, I'm going to set you up. I'm going to make you a holy people. If you will keep my commandments and the commandments of your God and you walk in his ways, he is going to bless you. And what, what are those blessings? He describes it starting in verse 10. So all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity and in the offspring of your body and in the offspring of your beast and in the produce of, your, of the ground in the land in which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. And the Lord will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens to give you rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand. 
And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord shall make you the head and not the tail. And you only shall be above and you shall not be underneath. Notice in verse 13, if you will listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I charge you today, to observe them carefully. Notice that what Moses is writing out to Israel, look, if you keep this law, there comes prosperity, abundant and rich prosperity. But on the other hand, verse 14, don't turn aside from any of the words which I command you today to the right or to the left or to go after other gods to serve them. But it shall come about if you will not obey the Lord your God to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I charge you today, that all these curses shall come upon you. And then comes the list of curses. Cursed shall be your city, and cursed shall be you be in the country, and cursed shall be your basket in your kneading bowl, and cursed shall be the offspring of your body, and the produce of your ground, and the increase of your herd, and the young of your flock, and on and on the curses go. All the way because of verse, at the end of verse 20. On a, all these curses come on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. So what was the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law was to point out and say, walk in this path of righteousness and we'll, what will come is the fulfillment of God's abounding blessings. It will lead you to righteousness and it will lead you to the blessing of God that comes as a result of the righteousness. That would be Israel's expectation when receiving the law. Now turn back to Romans chapter 8. And Paul says these words. For what the law was not able to do because of the weakness of the flesh. The law couldn't lead to righteousness. It couldn't lead to the blessing of God. It couldn't lead to the fulfillment of these things. And the problem wasn't the law. Again, it says, because of the weakness of the flesh or through the weakness of the flesh, the problem wasn't the law. The problem was the flesh. The problem was man. It's man's rebellion, man's heart, man's corruption. We saw that back in chapter 7. The law is holy, just, and good. Verse 12 Chapter 7, the law was perfect. God's commandments were good. His pathway was good. His promises were good. Even with good promises and a good path and good righteousness, man kept falling short. Man kept failing. It's all because of the weakness of man, his own frailties, his own sinful flesh. He rebelled. And he couldn't receive the blessings that would come. He couldn't He made righteous. He couldn't receive then the overflowing expressions of God's grace and mercy. So even though the law would intend to give that, and even though the law promised those things, it could never deliver it. He could never bring it. The law can never deliver. And this is the theme of the Apostle Paul, a unique theme, by the way. Let me show you one other time. Turn over to the book of Acts. Funny that Paul brings this same theme out in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 13. The law is unable to make righteous, it's unable to deliver, it's unable to conquer sin, it's unable. Acts chapter 13, Paul is preaching a message to Jews. Starts in verse 16. Stood up and he mentioned to men, he said, men of Israel, you who fear God, listen to me. Who is he talking to? He's talking to those who would be under the law, to Israelites, to Jews who held high regard for the law. And he goes through and he tells the story of Israel and he tells of God's work. But it's particularly verses 38 and verse 39 I want to point your attention to. In this sermon that he is preaching, he then makes these words. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, that is again, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. 
The very thing you couldn't receive in the law, you can receive in Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins. And now the key is verse 39. And through him, through Jesus, everyone who believes is freed, notice, freed from all things, notice, from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. The law couldn't free you, couldn't deliver you, couldn't rescue you, but Jesus Christ did. He does. He brings forgiveness of sins. He sets you free. He rescues you. This is the theme of the Apostle Paul, of the glories of the work of Jesus Christ that delivers his people. The law couldn't rescue, it couldn't bring the the rewards, it couldn't bring the blessing, but Jesus Christ, he did. Back to Romans 8, it's this idea of deliverance, this idea of rescuing. Though the law could have pointed He pointed to the path of righteousness, pointed to the favor of God, pointed to the blessing, came with all the promises. It was accurate in all of its work, and yet man is weak. Man is sinful. Man is corrupt. So the law could never deliver, could never rescue us from sin, could never make us holy, could never overcome evil. But on the other side, God did And that's the very next verse. That's the very next words that Paul says here. God did. For the law, what it couldn't do, weak as it was to the flesh, God did. Literally just says God. You'll notice in your Bible, like mine, it's probably italics there. The implied God accomplished it. God, how did he do it? In sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. God accomplished what the law could not accomplish. He brought an end to the rebellion. He brought an end to sin. Brought it through the Lord Jesus Christ. God accomplished the marvelous work, and he accomplished it in the sending of the son He took it upon himself to do what man couldn't do. Think about this. If all of history, God has been exposing the heart of man. All of history, God has been drawing out the wickedness within the heart. Again, the Bible is clear on this. You can go uh, go through the early chapters of Genesis and God looking upon the heart of man, Genesis chapter 6, and only seeing the thoughts and evil intentions of his heart continually. Man was in continual rebellion against God. And God's been telling him that, calling him to holiness. And yet persistently, man is falling short. So finally, enough is enough. God sends his son to accomplish what man could not accomplish. God accomplishes this marvelous work, and he does it through the doctrine of the incarnation. God sent his own son Eternal Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, entered into this world, taking on the form of humanity, born into this world through the Virgin Mary, entered into this world having to grow in wisdom and stature among God and men just like any other human being. And in the midst of that, he did this with sinless perfection. Notice, as the text indicates there, that he came, God sent his own son, so God did this work, that he sent Christ into this world, but it says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. And what is that, in the likeness of sinful flesh? Some have argued, and I would say wrongly, but they have argued, Jesus came into this world with a sinful nature just like us. That he had a corrupted, fallen flesh, just like we did, but he never gave into it. He possessed the fallen flesh, like we have a fallen flesh, but he never gave into it. And so he lived an entire life resisting that fallen flesh. Thinking in the midst of this, this makes Jesus more like us, more relatable to us. That's what we need for Jesus to really suffer like we suffer. And uh, I would have a significant theological problem with that. And it would be this. If Jesus possessed even passively a corrupt flesh, he could only pay for himself, not for us. Couldn't redeem anybody. No, 
There's some confusion that this view has. And the confusion that this view has is that they believe that sin is human. Say, that is wrong. Think about it. Genesis chapter 1. God created the heavens and the earth, and he also created man, did he not? And in creating man, at the end of Genesis chapter 1, created man in his own image, verse 26, and he says of man, he was good. Man was created perfect and good in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 2, man is still good. Then he creates Eve, and Adam and Eve, mankind is good. It isn't until chapter 3 that then man falls and rebels. Adam didn't become a man in chapter 3. He was created perfect from God without sin. You see, sin doesn't complete a human or make somebody human. Sin is the corruption of God's perfect work. So when Jesus came, that's why I love the wording that Paul uses here, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He didn't come in sinful flesh. He came in the likeness of. That is, he came with all the limitations that you and I have. He came with all of the limitations. He got hungry like we get hungry. I doubt he was ever hangry. That is, hungry to the point of being angry. But he was hungry like we are. Tired like we get tired. Wept like we weep. Distressed over the loss of life when Lazarus died, as we would be distressed. He, were, he went through all the same limitations that you and I went through, go through on a regular basis and yet without sin. Gave up the independent exercise of his divine attributes. He lost none of those attributes when he took on the human flesh. Every time he exercised any of those divine prerogatives, he always exercised them under the influence and directing of the Holy Spirit. But the key is that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to accomplish what none of us could accomplish. What was that? It says there, he condemned sin in the flesh. He did what no one else could do. He brought an end to sin. He brought an end to the rebellion. Lived perfectly in every way, tempted in every way, and gave in to nothing. And again, I'd say he suffered far more than even you and I suffer in the midst of this. Because not only did he have Satan directly coming to him, Matthew chapter 4, tempting him to evil, But he persistently walked in holiness, never once giving in to evil and only then seeing an increasing temptation and desire and in every way entrusting himself to the Father. Came perfectly, obeyed in every way, bringing victory. He condemned sin in the flesh. Let me show you this. Turn over to Colossians chapter 2 because Paul gives us this glorious picture in Colossians 2 of the conquering of sin. In Colossians chapter 2, we can start in verse 8. <clears throat> Paul says this. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So on the one hand, in in Romans 8 and verse 3, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Here in Colossians 2 and verse 9, In him is all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Jesus Christ, God very God and man very man. Now it goes on, and in him, verse 10, you have been made complete and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ 
having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Now here's the key, these last two verses. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The grand description is that all of our transgressions Every way which we violated the law, those charges were placed above the head of Christ, and when he died, he took those charges. Look, Paul could have stopped right there, and right there would have been glorious truth. But then notice these, this next verse, because this is so profoundly rich, and our eyes kind of miss the significance of this, but it is significant. Verse 15 It says, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. What is this? This is language of victory, language of conquest. The idea here is a conquering army that goes in and conquers a city and then marches out all the spoils of war. Jesus went in, he went to the cross, he took upon the, the, the penalty, he went, died, he removed sin, and now he comes out with the spoils of victory. Perp walking them out, demonstrating the riches of his glory, demonstrating that he has conquered, he has overcome. This is victorious language of triumph. I tell you, we don't feel like this right now. But this day is coming. And in God's mind, it already happened at the resurrection. God's vantage point, that was the victory. At the resurrection, the proof that God conquered sin occurred when Jesus Christ rose from the grave that he is victorious. All his enemies are done. Yeah, you have a, we have a little fight right now. Little sub battles. But this war is done. Turn back to Romans chapter 8. He condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 3, Jesus Christ. For what end? What purpose did he do this? And tells us in verse 4, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. This is the purpose. So that all of God's righteous requirements would be satisfied in us. Condemned sin, brought an end to it, removed it, and then he supplies in us that righteousness. This is great. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What was the requirement of the law? Back to Deuteronomy 28. If you kept it, if you did this, you would be blessed. If you kept my commandments, you you obeyed and heard my word, you would be blessed, and you would not only be blessed in your earthly life, in your family life, in your work life, you would be fully blessed. And here, Paul says, Christ came taking on flesh so that he can condemn sin and fulfill the requirement of the law in us. This is the grand work of justification. God puts his righteousness on us. The law now, measuring us in Jesus Christ, would be satisfied. God would look at us as if we had completed his perfect life, as if we had lived and completed everything that he did, that we are righteous in every way. So the law would have no charge against us, nothing it can bring against us to condemn us because it's fully been satisfied in Christ and because we have been credited with his righteousness. We've been credited with his good works. So that the penalty of sin is removed. And even the power of sin is removed. And eventually we're anticipating that day when even the presence of sin will be removed. Now who has the right to this? Notice this. 
Who has the right to this victory, to this? Because it isn't for everyone. There is a particular group, and he says that there. It's fulfilled in us. Who are the us, Paul? Those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Spirit affirms. Spirit is the evident party that demonstrates this newness of life, this victory, this conquering. We already started to see the Spirit's work in verse 2, and we're going to see it much more, but the question would be for you, just by starting to show you this, how would you know the Spirit of God is in you? Well, let me show you, verse 13. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die, but if by the Spirit of The Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Spirit-filled life is moving us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Those who are yielding to the Spirit, actually in this text, from verse 12 to verse 17, there are five evidences of the Spirit's ruling in us, and we'll get to that in the weeks to come. But we can evidence and see this work. So back to verses 3 and 4 there. What is it that Paul is demonstrating here? He's demonstrating this, that in God and God alone, he is victorious. He accomplishes what the law couldn't accomplish. It couldn't bring deliverance. He brings deliverance. It couldn't bring blessing. He brings blessing. It couldn't bring rewards. He fulfills the rewards and brings those rewards. God accomplishes it. We don't accomplish it. He rescues us and enables us. So the moment when we're in the battles and we're wrestling through the difficulties of life, the response of us is to be, Spirit, lead me. God, direct me. Help me to yield to you. Help me to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. I'm vulnerable to drift back into fleshly passions or desires. I'm vulnerable to go back to the weakness of the flesh. So that our hope, and again, everything that's been laid out here from verse 1 through verse 4 are grand demonstration of God's marvelous work. These are the graces that God has given us to help us in the spiritual battle. We're not living under fear and condemnation. We're living with a principle of new life, and we are recognizing God is victorious. Christian, this is what God has been demonstrating from Genesis chapter 3 through all of human history until he completes his good work. We're weak. We're inept. We fall short. We are inconsistent in our spiritual pursuits. We are, in our own efforts, and our own abilities, we can't keep the law. But Christ did. Christ kept it all, perfectly satisfying all the righteous demands. And so our victory is in God. And what will happen in all of eternity, when we finally get there, there won't be a single person in heaven saying, I did this other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself will look and say, look what I accomplished in redeeming. But for the rest of us, we will all say, God in me, the Spirit in me and through me, God in his marvelous work rescued and brought me here. God is victorious. I just did my best to get out of the way so he could be victorious in me and through me. That is the rest of our life, getting out of the way that the Spirit of God would be victorious in us and through us as we're yielding in faith to Him. And the riches of this is that this is what God has been working towards. He's been working towards bringing an end to sin, end to rebellion. That's what He promised to the angel Gabriel, to Daniel. That's what He's promised Uh, to accomplish, and he says he's done here in Romans 8, verse 3, when he condemned sin in the flesh, and now we're just waiting for the final moments. You know, we don't, we're not at the victory parade yet. Some of us, obviously, 
who have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ are getting our spot in line because we're going to watch that parade. We're going to be a part of it. And we're going to rejoice. So let me ask you this question this. As you walk through life, as you think through the details of life, are you turning to God for victory? Are you drawing near to him and yielding to his spirit, relying upon him to bring out that victory? Are you still looking to yourself, to your own wisdom, your own understanding? There's no law you could keep to eradicate sin. But by faith in Christ, you can be delivered entirely. Well, that's only the third grace the Lord gives us. We'll pick up more next week. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the riches of your truth here, just the comforts of your doctrine that informs us and equips us and strengthens us so that when the lies of the flesh come and when areas of unbelief fill our heart, we can turn back to your truth. It's in your truth that we find deliverance. We're so thankful that you have brought us into the family and made us children of God so that we can call out in faith. In the midst of this, then we find hope and we find victory in you and in what you've accomplished. And so we ask that whenever we're failing, whenever we're finding ourselves falling short, whenever the weakness of the flesh is manifest, may it be in those moments that we turn in faith to your scriptures and hold on to these glorious truths and experience that power which you says is mightily at work within us. We don't doubt your power. We don't doubt your accomplishments. In fact, the more we turn to your scriptures, the more our heart is encouraged. Father, we do long for that day of deliverance where we get to see this glorious work And we long for it not only for our own sake, but we long for it for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, that his name will be vindicated, that all of his enemies will be brought low, and indeed, his name will be above every other name. Till that time, fill our hearts with hope and anticipation of his arrival. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.